Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A Virgin Media television survey has revealed alarming levels of reluctance over going to hospital emergency departments. But more than three quarters of those questioned worried about long wait times and overcrowding. I think that's a very accurate picture of what's facing any, anybody who's depending on the, on the overcrowded system at the moment. We have ample evidence that shows that where you have a reduced number of nurses, you are going to have delayed care. Enoch Burke was back at Wilson's Hospital School in County West Meath again today. Shane Phelan from the Irish Independent has a recap on this story for us. We'll be discussing why a deal between Quilcha and a British investment fund is so controversial. And US President Joe Biden has announced that American tanks will also be delivered to Ukraine following the lead of Germany. Because you all know I've been saying this for a long time. The expectation on the part of Russia is we're going to break up. We're not going to stay united, but we are fully, thoroughly, totally united. Join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Burke was back at Wilson's Hospital School in County Westmeath again today. The teacher who was dismissed from his post last week was prevented from entering the building and stood outside. Mr Burke was jailed for contempt of court orders in early September because he continued to attend the school despite there being court orders restraining him from doing so. He was released on an open-ended basis on December 21st last after 108 days without having purged his contempt. Well, shortly before coming on air, I spoke to legal affairs editor at the Irish Independent, Shane Phelan, and I began by asking him about how this story all began. Claire, the genesis of this can be traced back to May of last year, um, where uh, the parents of uh, a pupil and a pupil they had a meeting with, uh, with the principal of the school and it was made, made known that this uh, pupil wished to be known by a new name and uh, uh, that they, their pronouns be used in connection with them. And subsequent to that, the principal at the time sent an email to staff relaying that request. Um, now, Enoch Burke, he's uh, from a well-known family of evangelical Christians. Uh, he uh, didn't want to comply with this request, or a demand, as he called it. Uh, and uh, he clashed with school management on a number of occasions. There is dispute over the precise nature of those clashes, mm -hmm. But it's safe to say there were at least two, one uh, at a, a, a church chapel or at, at a chapel service and uh, the second one shortly after it at a school dinner. Uh, this gave rise to the school principal preparing a report for the board of management. And on foot of that report, the board of management decided to suspend Enoch Burke uh, from work on full pay pending the outcome of a disciplinary inquiry. But um, despite being suspended, he kept turning up for work. Uh, school went to the High Court and they secured orders restraining him from do so. Despite those orders, he kept 
uh, uh, kept on showing up. And eventually he ended up in prison for 108 days for contempt of court, eventually being released just before Christmas. Um, and despite being released um, uh, with a warning uh, from the judge that um, he would likely find himself back, for, back in prison or face some other penalty, um, he, uh, if he continued to breach court's orders, he was back at the school again on January 5th when it reopened after Christmas. Tell us about this disciplinary hearing, this process that began, because there was, at that, there was a number of members of the Burke family that, that showed up. Yeah, so the disciplinary process was, was paused while he was in prison and it restarted as soon as he came out. The earliest opportunity the school board had to meet about it uh, was last Thursday. It happened at a, a hotel in Mullingar and Enoch Burke was invited to be present and he brought a number of a member, members of his family with him. But uh, within minutes, the meeting descended into chaos. There was shouting, there was roaring, could be heard all the way down the corridor. Uh, the uh, members of the Burke family, they were objecting to the presence of two solicitors uh, at the meeting and also the absence of the, the chairperson of the school's board of management who was absent for medical reasons. Uh, things got quite heated, the Gardaí were called, mm. the Burks had to be excluded from the room and the, uh, the meeting uh, continued then in their absence. And afterwards, when it broke up, uh, members, members of the Burke family, they actually pursued some of the people who had been at the meeting out of the hotel, uh, loudly berating them, raising this issue about the solicitors and the, uh, the, 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 uh, the chairperson of the board again and again. Mm. The, um, that meeting, uh, as far as we were, aware at, we were aware at the time, there was no outcome. Uh, but the following day, Enoch Burke then uh, again returned to the school. And that evening, uh, a statement was issued uh, to uh, the media by a member of the family, basically confirming that at 3.30 last Friday, he had been dismissed. Uh, and he had been informed of this in the presence of the school principal and the chairperson of the board. So despite being dismissed from his position at the school late last week, as you say, he has been showing up there. Um, he, he was actually arrested, wasn't he, yesterday, uh, because he, he showed up and then he wouldn't leave. But he was back again today. Uh, not only was he back again uh, today, he actually, after his arrest yesterday, he was released without charge and returned to the school immediately afterwards. And there was something of a standoff at the gates. Uh, the school principal tried to, or told him he wasn't uh, allowed to come in, that he wasn't welcome in. The gates were closed and he was left standing outside these closed gates for uh, a number of minutes. A vehicle came along, they had to open the gates for it and then he went back into the school again and he was again there today. So, I mean, is this a really obvious question, but what's Enoch Burke's aim with all of this, given that he has been dismissed? Well, his primary aim is to be reinstated. And he said that on a number of occasions in court. Um, but I think at this stage, the, uh, the likelihood of him being reinstated is, is, is very remote. There's clearly been a, a, a complete breakdown in relations between him and the school's board of management. It's also, I suppose, uh, been said in, in one of the High Court rulings in this case that uh, his motivation, he may be motivated by uh, uh, seeing some sort of advantage in his plight. So um, uh, one of the reasons he was released from prison was that the, the judge who was handling that uh, formed the, uh, the opinion that Enoch Burke was deriving some sort of advantage uh, from being in, uh, remaining in prison, that he was now much, much better known, that his cause and his religious views were much better known by virtue of that fact. So by extension, uh, it could be the case, and I'm speculating here, it could be the case that, um, you know, there's an element of publicity seeking here. And might he still have his job if he stayed away from the school? 
Yes. Um, if Enoch Burke had agreed to stay away from the school, um, the High Court indicated um, uh, quite recently that it was minded to give him orders which would uh, prohibit the school from, uh, from, uh, from dismissing him at present, pending the outcome of a full trial. Uh, but it would only grant those orders if he himself would agree to abide by the court orders to stay away from the school. He said that was something he couldn't do. So um, if, he, yeah, if he had uh, agreed to abide by those orders, he would be, still be in the job today. Look, 108 days in prison, all of this going on, as you say, from May of last year, essentially. How much longer is it likely to go on? Where is all of this likely to go now, Shane? Well, there's a few things happening which are going to bring things further to a head. So the guards have uh, said they're going to send a file to the DPP. The issue here um, is that um, uh, he's arrested for alleged trespass and there ha there's a couple of ingredients to that, uh, 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 to that charge uh, uh, before they can actually bring somebody to court. And one of those is that it would have to be shown that he had no reasonable excuse for being at the premises and the other is that he was behaving in a manner likely to cause fear to another person. So the, the Guardian would have to wait and see, is the DPP satisfied that those ingredients are there? So we're awaiting we're word on that. Is he going to be charged? Will he be brought before the courts? Secondly, there's this uh, uh, there's a decision uh, due later this week on whether his assets will be sequestered. So this is basically his assets being, being held or frozen and uh, uh, until the court decides what to do with them. And that's designed to be coercive. So the idea here is, well, look, uh, he couldn't be coerced into complying by being in prison. Uh, can he be coerced into complying by having his assets frozen? All right, there we leave it. Shane Phelan, Legal Affairs Editor with the Irish Independent. Thank you for bringing us up to date on that story. Well, moving on now, and a Virgin Media television survey has laid bare people's concerns over health care in the country. The Red Sea Post sought the views of more than a thousand adults right across the country. And in it, 38 percent of people said they or a member of their family who recently attended a hospital experienced a long stay on a trolley or waiting on a bed. And a large majority of people, 77 percent, are reluctant to attend an emergency department due to waiting uh, concerns there. There's a big concern over resources. 86% of respondents are anxious that in the event of a serious emergency, the response time will not be rapid enough, while eight in 10 say they're concerned about misdiagnosis due to poor staffing and resources. And then there's the waiting list. Almost half said they or an adult member of their family who are waiting to see a specialist have been waiting for more than two years. Likewise, 43% of children, uh, people with children who are waiting on a specialist say that their children have been waiting for over two years. Well, for more on this now, Irish Examiner, Deputy Political Editor Elaine Lachlan and Independent TD Michael McNamara are here in studio and Minister of State Pippa Hackett will be joining us later on in the programme. Elaine, to come to you first, many people watching say this really is no surprise after what's been a chaotic winter. Um, that statistic about almost four in ten people who attended hospital had to wait for a long period on a hospital trolley. Uh, it really says it all about the reality that people have faced to date if they've had to attend an emergency department. It does, and I don't think those stats 
while they are stark, I don't think they'll be surprising to anyone today because I think if I was asked those questions, I would be saying I'd be reluctant to go into an emergency department right now. And that's not really the attitude or the mindset that people should have. If people are sick, they should be contacting mm. their doctor, their G GP or else attending an emergency department if they deem it necessary or serious enough. But I think the other stat that maybe stood out for me was the two final ones around the waiting mm. times and the fact that a lot of people are waiting, not just months, but years for treatments and therapies. And I think uh, during the, the most recent crisis, on top of a crisis, if you want to call it that, over the Christmas, where we had over 900 people waiting on trolleys in, on one day, we did see down in Waterford where there were no uh, patients on trolleys and they seem to have got over the issues that other hospitals around the country are facing still uh, on a daily basis. And we have more than 400 people today on trolleys. But what Waterford did is they cancelled uh, services or they moved services. Uh, the likes of cancer services were moved and uh, scheduled treatments were cancelled. They are drastic measures and... While that may work in one isolated case, if all hospitals were to do that, you could see those figures going from two years to four years to five mm. years. And we already have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people waiting for treatments that they really need. Yeah, there are those elective procedures and surgeries mm -hmm. that are adding to that waiting list. There's, uh, I think, a million people on waiting lists around the country mm. um, for treatment. Uh, Michael McNamara, yeah, no surprise, as we say, and I think a lot of people will feel that way. But what you get from that survey, I think, is a deep fear of our, of our health service. How, how real is that fear from people, say, in your constituency in Clare, uh, many of whom would be facing the prospect of, of having to go to Limerick University with consistently the worst emergency department uh, waiting times and highest numbers on trolleys? Yeah, I mean, today is, is, is a rare day in that Limerick is not the most overcrowded hospital in the country today. It is almost every day of the year. Um, and, you know, there... There are people who are afraid, even when ambulance crews arrive, they're afraid to be brought to Limerick and reluctant to get in an ambulance because it will bring them to Limerick. Obviously, there's been a, a new protocol where a very small number of ambulance patients can be brought to, to Ennis. And does that actually happen, that people say, <coughs> you're bringing me to Limerick, you're all right, I, I, I won't go? Uh, anecdotally, I, I've heard that there's at least a reluctance. I mean, obviously, it depends on how unwell mm. somebody is. But, um, you know, people don't want to be brought to Limerick. They want to go anywhere else. People will drive anywhere else. But the one thing, you know, there was a meeting at the start of this year that the Taoiseach attended along with all elected representatives, HSE management and management of the region. And it was encouraging, at least, to hear the Taoiseach acknowledge that Limerick and the region, the Midwest region, um, is under-resourced in comparison to the rest of the country. And, of course, all of the country is under-resourced, but there's a particular under-resourcing in that region. And also um, Dr Michael Connor, who's part of the emergency response uh, unit in the HSE, acknowledging that the Model 2 hospitals, Nina, Ennis and St John's, are underutilised. So the challenge is, it's easy to acknowledge something, but the challenge is to get more patients into Ennis, more patients into Nina, more patients into St John's. That would St. be, John's of course, reversing a plan and a decision <clears throat> that was made some years ago to change it all and centralise it in Limerick. But do you believe that that now is the solution and what needs to happen? Well, I mean, the centralisation was regarding A&E patients. I mean, not everybody needs to go through an A&E, but at the moment... Our health system is such that you can't get a doctor because it's a shortage of GPs. Mm. You can't see your GP, you're sick. So the only way to be seen is to show up in A&E. I'm aware of people who had an elective surgery planned for a long time, a necessary one, 
and they're told that there's no bed for you. And their consultant says, go to A&E. If you go through A&E, you'll find a bed. So at the moment, it's not just in the Midwest, but it's particularly acute in the Midwest, that if you want medical care, you've no choice but to go through an A&E. That needs to change. There need to be other avenues that you can access uh, medical care. And not everybody needs to go. You know, there is a local injuries unit. Obviously, if you've had a heart attack or a stroke, uh, you need the backup of... of um, uh, the critical care unit or intensive care as it might be colloquially called but not everybody needs that and I suppose that is the challenge to get people who don't need to be in an A&E who don't need that a very intensive level of care mm -hmm. to go elsewhere and the HSE need to, to plan for that though because I asked uh, you know what resources are going to be given to Ennis given this announced change and I was told, well, there'll be a review and we'll figure it out. Then I asked in the doll this week, what was the result of that review? And the Taoiseach didn't know. And I'm not, he's not supposed to know everything. But sure. I mean, but we do need to stay on top of this and make sure that those hospitals are resourced to take some people away yeah, from Yeah, it is interesting about staying on top of this story because uh, this crisis is enduring beyond the headlines in the new year. That's when we got Stephen Donnelly coming out, like all hands on deck. You know, we are well aware of this. We're not, we don't want to see this for yet another year and another year at the same time. Um, and yet, how is the government responding? Is there that urgency now that something must be done? We still have trolley figures. I think, you know, 517 patients around the country waiting for a bed. 403 of those are in emergency departments. Like, it clearly hasn't gone away. No, it hasn't. And I think over the over the Christmas, when this did th this spiked to new levels, both the health minister and the Taoiseach were out pointing to the fact that a thousand more beds have been created in the system. And really, for the hundreds of people who are on trolleys every single day, those thousand beds mean absolutely nothing because they're not seeing them. And while it's it's to be welcomed that we have increased capacity, we also need more staff. But we, we need a, a, a more concerted effort. Now, the Taoiseach has met with the HSE on a number of occasions since coming into office in December. The Health Minister does seem to be wanting to progress this as quickly as possible. But this is something that has been an issue for decades. Um, yeah, it's not just something that's cropped up overnight. And also that was mentioned about, about beds. I mean, a, beds is, a bed is simply not just a bed. It's a bed that is, is staffed accordingly. Um, and we heard Fiona Hay from the INMO saying staffing levels are such that it is difficult to safely treat people. And we had record numbers of children waiting admission in our emergency department yesterday. 46 children waiting for a bed. You know, the question is, is this any way to treat sick children? Um, and can the, that promise of a thousand beds, if it can't be met with the adequate staffing, you know, it's not it, it's not really a promise that can ever well, be I mean, fulfilled. Already it's about staffing. I mean, for the first time, I think now in Limerick, there are unfilled positions, positions that they can't fill for a, a variety of reasons. But that's particularly concerning that they're creating positions that they can't find people to fill. Because one of the things when they declared an emergency was there were a lot more diagnostics uh, available. Uh, people other than, obviously, nurses, doctors are hugely important. But you also need uh, people in the laboratories, um, people in, in diagnostics, mm -hmm. because you can't move people on in the a &E until you get diagnostics back and there's a shortage in every medical profession from doctors, nurses, uh, radiographers, anaesthetists. I mean, there's a, a suggestion that this new, a new surgical hub will help with waiting times in Limerick. But already we know that the theatre in Limerick is underutilised and the theatres in Innes, St. John, Innes and Nina and St. John's even more so because of the shortage of anaesthetists and theatre nurses to staff them. So you can create this new space, you can kit it out, that's wonderful. But if you have nobody to enable the surgeons, if you don't have the support staff there to enable the surgeons to go in and carry out elective surgery, 
surgeries, it's not going to work. So there is a huge problem. It's been a long time waiting, but it is, I think it's important to acknowledge, particularly acute in the Midwest for historical reasons, going right back to the 80s. There are just less beds, less consultants, hospital doctors, less non-consultants, less nurses per capita in the Midwest. And that does need to be addressed to bring us up to the poor level that exists sure. in the rest of the country. Um, and recruitment at the core of all of this again, even if there are the beds and the positions available, well, and then it's the having the those situation positions gets, The less attractive it is for people to take a post in Limerick or even in the Irish right. healthcare system because people just want to work in a, in a civilised working environment without those huge pressures that a &E staff mm -hmm. in particular are under. Okay, well my panel will be staying on with me after the break. Quilter's controversy explained. We'll have the Minister of State with us. Uh, stay with us. Do come back. Welcome back. A new deal between Irish forestry business Quilta and British investment firm Gresham House has been labelled scandalous and a land grab by critics who include forest owners, farmers and opposition politicians. The investment fund has announced a 200 million euro Irish forest fund accepted by Quilta, while Irish examiner, deputy political editor Elaine Lachlan, independent TD Michael McNamara uh, are still with me. And Minister of State for Land Use and Biodiversity, Pippa Hackett, uh, joins us now in studio. And via Skype tonight, we're joined by Podrick Fogarty from the Irish Wildlife Trust. Um, you're welcome along to the programme, uh, Minister, to come to you fresh from uh, a committee hearing on all of this. And we will get to that because I just want to get the overview um, from Elaine on this. Um, can we take a step back and look at, at where this controversy has arisen a need to develop more forestry in this country mm -hmm. and a solution that involves foreign interests. Yeah, well, overall, we need about 450,000 hectares of forest by 2050. Quilcha will have a role in this. It's hoped around 100,000 hectares and then the remainders, landowners, farmers uh, and others will hopefully plant more trees on our land and this is to meet you know 2030 goals and 2050 climate action goals. Uh, the Irish Strategic Forestry Fund is to provide finance to create some of these new forests, 100,000 uh, hectares as I said, that will be managed on the ground by Quilcha. Where the controversy comes in is around Gresham House that has done a deal with Quilcha to help essentially uh, provide, it's, it's only a small number when you're talking, or a small amount when you're talking about the overall, but it, it will be three and a half thousand hectares over the next five years. Um, they will own this land? It's, it's a very grey area. They're, they are the, the kind of the UK fund uh, and Quilcha will manage it, run it on the ground. Um, so, you know, I think a lot we of people will manage it, but the, the UK, the UK fund will essentially uh, own it under this deal that's been done. Essentially, okay. yes. Okay, right. So let's talk then about what happened at today's committee session. Um, you were there, Pippa Hackett. Mm -hmm. You were facing questions uh, by none too happy TDs. What were they saying to you? 
Um, look, it was, it was a robust debate. It was a bit four hours, essentially. There was a few breaks for votes in the doll, but it was um, um, a lengthy debate. Um, there was, I suppose, a lot of clarity needed, and we, we myself and Minister McConnell clarified some of the details around um, this particular fund, around where Quil should sit in, in the role of afforestation in Ireland. Um, and, you know, I think the, the issues that have been raised in, in the media over the last number of, you know, 10 days or so um, were reflected in the, de- in the debate mm. today. But I think... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It was on the whole a constructive debate, which I think was welcome. Um, there were some suggestions there, you know, as to what we might look at in the future. And um, I thought, you know, I think all in all, uh, Deputy McNamara was there too. You mm. managed to escape before me. Um, but I, I, I think on the whole, it was it was a constructive um, debate, right. albeit long. OK, constructive but long. Uh, Michael McNamara, from your perspective, um, because you are you're concerned about this plan and mm. uh, concerned about a British investment for owning tracts of land, uh, planting on that land, and then Quilta essentially managing it. Um, but what impact do you think this will have? Why are you so worried about it? Well, I suppose I'm worried essentially that it's going to amount to a lot of greenwashing because at the moment, uh, uh, the vast majority of the Quilcha estate is Sitka spruce. Uh, it's a monoculture. Um, yes, it's good for carbon 
sequestration, you get mm. carbon credits, and I suppose there's an issue about who's going to get the carbon credits from this land, and is it going to go to the Gresham House? Is that what investors are looking for? If it goes to Gresham House, obviously it's not going to go to Ireland, even though the Irish Strategic Investment Fund is investing in it. I asked the question, didn't get a whole lot of clarity. There's also a lack of clarity about when this plan was, uh, you know, both the Tanisht and the Taoiseach said they knew nothing about it, yet it transpired today that I think both ministers, yourself and Minister McConnell, knew about this for some time, even signed off on it, or at least approved no. it. Well, there was a letter um, uh, sent by December. the Department. But you department. were aware that Creelty were going to engage the, with private investment in yeah, order been, to meet these targets. That's been widely... But know, the big yeah, issue is that, aware. you know, we're told that this is necessary to increase afforestation, yet Gresham House say that they're going to meet their targets through acquiring existing forestry and afforestation. So that begs the question, if they're going to buy existing forestry, how is that going to increase the afforestation in the country? And if they're going to afforest, well, what's it going to be? Is it just going to be Sitka spruce? Because very little lives in these huge plantations. I mean, there's a huge... I, I live in Scariff County Clare. There's a, if you drive from Scariff to Gort, over to Loch Ray, back to Scariff, it's about a 40 kilometre triangle. There's very little living in these huge Sitka spruce plantations. Very little employment right. being created. Very little benefit to the local community. So actually, community. your concern isn't so much that it's a British, British investment oh, no, fund coming in and buying the land. Of, of, of course it's what's it is going to be planted there. Of course it is, because it means that every farm that's for sale is a is a, what was once a family farm in albeit marginal area. And we're told that there's a role for marginal farms. But increasingly, it seems that the Department of Agriculture is saying their only role is to sell their land, sell their family farm to a British investment fund who can then get the carbon yeah. uh, credits and engage in, okay. in a degree of greenwashing. We do know, Pippa Hackett, that we do have these climate targets that need to be met. And it is a big challenge. So why isn't the state coming in and buying this land and Quilta managing that land? Why can't that happen? Well, yes, the challenge is great. We have, as Elaine said, 450,000 hectares to plant between now and 2022. 50. That's that's going from about 16.6% of our land mass at the moment to 18 to, to 18 sorry to 18%. Sorry, 11.6% to yeah, 18%. Yeah, because I think on average now, the, rest, the rest of Europe is something like 40% of forestry. We're, we're way below. We're, way we're, we're almost the, the so bottom of the wrong year. Yes, again, when it comes to all of this, catch, catch up. up. Absolutely, right. and the challenge is the, the challenge is great, um, but ultimately we have secured funding for for 1.3 billion euro state funds to, to inject into the forestry sector to support farmers to plant trees. And I mean, that's going to be the biggest deliverer. Farmers on the ground across Ireland are going to deliver the biggest amount of trees over the next 30 years. Um, and that's where our focus is. That's where our funding will be guided towards. And, you know, we want to engage with farmers. We want them to re-engage with planting. Yeah, no, I know that. And I think, you know, that will be welcome. Although I, I think farmers are probably uh, wondering when they are going to be able to avail of those grants and how quickly those licences will all come through. But we're not actually talking about that. What we're talking about is essentially Quilta subcontracting the land, that they're selling the land, they're managing it, they're doing all the heavy work, all the hard work, and who's making the profit on that land? Well, again, just to bring a bit of clarity to this, um, Gresham House will be the fund managers of this particular fund. The fund itself will be called the Irish Strategic Forestry Fund. So Gresham House will manage the fund. The fund will have all sorts of investors, um, ISIF have already invested 25 million into mm. it. There could be other Irish investors in it. It's not not decided. I, I assume. I mean, I don't. I'm not involved in, in in that part. None of us are. That's a matter for Gresham House and Quilcha. Quilcha will manage then how, how the the forestry is done. Quilcha will identify yeah. if, if if suitable land comes up That's for sale. That's what I mean. They're They'll doing the, the hard call. yards. They're doing the work on this. Yes. And and who's making the money? Who is this profiting? Because investment well, ultimately, funds don't go in, as we know, with housing. Yes, but ultimately, unless there's money to be made. But in order to draw down the state funds through the grants and the premia, and this is the difference. 
difficulty. Quilch are not entitled to, to draw down premia. Farmers are. Farmers will get 20 years premia. Non-farmers will get 20, or sorry, 15 years premia. Quilch as a state entity are not entitled to draw down premia and haven't been so since 2003. So that's why they haven't been involved in state in, in, plant, in okay. planting. But this, this gives them an opportunity to re-engage in that um, by is it using... Right? Like, is it, I mean, the question is, are you, are you happy with that plan? Are you happy with the way they're going Listen, about it? Listen, I think this particular um, Gresham House deal, and it has, I, I accept it's caught a lot of attention. It's, it's genuine concern out there as to it. There has been a lot of, to be honest, misinformation around it. The figures bandied around have been going from like 120,000 hectares, you know, it, big figures. We're talking about three and a half thousand hectares over right. the next five years. That's about 700 a year. That's less than a tenth of what our annual targets okay. are in afforestation. So, but that's one tiny, this is one tiny um, pick, um, piece in, in the overall puzzle picture that is afforestation. Okay. A tiny piece is what we're hearing and from Pippa Hackett here. It's three to four thousand uh, hectares when what we have to do is huge. It's four hundred and fifty thousand. So in the grand scheme of things, it, it's not a lot of land that's being sold off to foreign interests. Yeah, but you know there was a time when councils used to build houses all over Ireland. And then we were told actually we don't need councils to build houses. We'll get private investors in from across the world and they'll build all the houses we need. We know where that's ended disastrously. We need houses. We need local authorities doing them again. So it seems to me that that approach has been replicated in this, but we couldn't, because we couldn't get the licensing sector with regard to afforestation uh, permits and filling permits, we couldn't get our house in order within the department to encourage farmers to plant land. Because for a vast number of farmers who are in forestry, they're incredibly frustrated with the delays in afforestation. I appreciate it's improved since uh, it, has Im it is improving. Yeah. Uh, but as of now, if a farmer wants to plant land, it makes an application, it won't be processed because of further bureaucratic delays. So on the one hand, we're telling farmers that you should go in this direction. And on the other, they're meeting barrier after barrier after barrier. Um, and it, so they're walking away. And instead of trying to work with farmers, and encourage them to carry out forestry and a, and a more maybe sustainable type of forestry than that which Quilcha engage in. Instead, we're going to private investment funds, we're going to go with Quilcha, we're going to plant these vast tracts of land with Sitka spruce, which is not, has Three a lot and a half of... half thousand acres which, is not vast, No, Michael. but these, these vast Quilcha plantations, Pippa, I've invited you to come to Slevocti to I'm see what's going... I'm looking forward to coming. I, I, Brilliant, because I'll show you that nothing, like, it is not sustainable, the type of right. forestry that's been carried out by Quilch okay. at the moment. And getting foreign investors to, to find, to buy land for them to engage in unsustainable forestry cannot be the solution. It'll just result in greenwashing. I'm sorry, but I, I don't see any answers there. Um, Gresham House have said that Irish investors amount for mo most of this most investments of course in they do. this The Irish state is putting 25 million into it. All right. Okay. So you, you believe that that's where that's where well, when, when you say the most of Irish investment. There's, 30, there's 35 million in the fund up to now. The Irish taxpayers have, have pumped up 25 of the 35 to date. All right. Just on that point you were making about what's actually being planted on the land, I want to bring Paul Fogarty from the Irish Wildlife Trust in there. Uh, it's a rare place, I think, when you and, and farmers, the IFA, are in agreement perhaps on this one, Porrick. Um, but from a wildlife point of view, one may think more forestry, how bad? But that's not how you see it. What are your concerns? 
Yeah, so uh, forestry to date in Ireland has been a, an ecological disaster. Uh, yes, we can say that uh, about 11% of our country is covered in trees, uh, but 10% of that is, as Michael pointed out, non-native plantations of Sitka spruce, which are pretty catastrophic from a, an ecological perspective. Our beautiful native woodlands are possibly less than 1%. Now, uh, what we're looking at at the moment is uh, is, is Quilcha, you know, doing deals with private investors. And really, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. Quilja have been doing deals with uh, private investors and other investors for quite some time. Uh, and why we shouldn't be surprised is because they've been set up as a commercial entity. Quilja really are only interested in making money, uh, protecting nature, uh, climate change are not core concerns of theirs. So, I mean, one of the things that we would like to see coming out of this is that the remit of Quilja be changed. And of course, ultimately, you're right, we have an enormous uh, climate and biodiversity challenge. We're going to see an awful lot more uh, need for trees and woodland of all different types and sizes and purposes. Uh, but we need to see those kinds of uh, uh, forest establishments put on a very much an ecological footing. So either that's uh, rewilding and uh, native forests, or it's um, what's called continuous cover forestry that doesn't involve these uh, plantations and and clear felling. But Michael is also right. I mean the the new forest strategy that's about to deliver 1.3 billion euro to the forest industry um, is mostly about more and more plantations of Sitka spruce plantation and that really has okay. to change. Uh, you are demonstrating outside Leinster House on this tomorrow. Do you expect to see a U-turn on the deal? Because we've, we've heard a bit of reluctance now from the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell, on this not being his preferred option. Um, you know, there was more talk about that at co uh, committee stage today. Do you think there'll be a change of heart? Well, I think it's, it's been very positive to hear some of the things that have been said. Uh, the Thornish, the Michal Martin, said that the state needs to get back into buying land just for rewilding. And I think that would be very welcome. We could make uh, nature reserves across the country that uh, local communities are involved in managing. But I think it's very, very important that uh, the commercial side of any new forestry uh, is on a nature-friendly basis. Right. A huge amount of public consultation has gone into this. And really what's happening at the moment is... Uh, the department and the government are not listening to what people want out of trees and out of forests. Okay. Um, uh, thank you for your input there on that, Porik. Um, and, you know, about the, the mix of trees and actually what's going to be planted if we need mm. such a vast amount of, of new forestry in this country, what's going to go into the land. Um, but, Elaine, it's interesting, isn't it, the change attack that appears from government on this because they did admit, and we heard Charlie McConnell admit at committee today, yes, um, they were pursuing private interests as far back as, you know, late 2020 and 2021. Government knew this, and yet... They're only saying now, well, we can't do anything about this deal because we only got us word of it when the deal had been done. Yeah, and I think as well, while the government are saying that it's not the preferred option, this sort of an arrangement or this deal is not what they'd like to see in the future, we don't know uh, how Quilcha will get up to that 100,000 hectares and there's nothing to stop them doing a similar deal with another type of fund to get to that level by 2050. We just, we just at the moment don't know how they will do that. Yeah, so that's the question here. Is there something wrong? Because the state aid ru rules you're saying, Pip, are precluding mm -hmm. the likes of Quilcha 
from taking government money, is it, to, and, and to, to, in order to manage and own the tracts of land, which many would be happier about. Yes. But is there, is there a bit of leeway there? Well, are the rules being read correctly? Well, they are, the current rules are, but we have, um, there, there is an opportunity now to, to revisit because there are new state aid guidelines now um, released by the Commission. It's a European ruling, this is. Um, so we will look at that. We will examine that if there is potential there um, for Quilcha to, to avail of the premium. That's the, it's the premium that really helped this whole thing to work. It's what makes it work for farmers. It'll what, it'll what makes it work for whether it's Quilcha or make it work for investors. But it's the premium that are important. If, if government chooses to direct Quilcha to scrap this plan, so there's a review taking place now onto this whole deal, and if that's the direction because they sense you know, public disquiet over it, What's, what's the, what's the option? They've made it clear they won't, though. They're sort of, it's like St. Augustine, oh Lord, let me be good, but not just yet. I mean, we don't like this, we don't approve of it, uh, but sure, we're going to implement this, it anyway. The, is that the, the case? This is a, a five-year plan, and, and it's probably worth doing to see how it works, to see, how, do, do, do they meet so the test, land targets? Test the waters no, but I mean, it's signed, it's, it's signed, it's a signed uh, contract. We're not going to pull back out that? of that. I think it's one element of it. We can see clearly, mm. and I accept the concerns, and we can see that there is, you know, relatively widespread public disquiet about that. And that's important to take that on board. It's important for Quilcha to take that on board. It's important for the, us in government to take that on board. Quilcha also engage with public bodies as well. But They're engaging with yeah. Ward Nimona. I, I There's potential back, there. I, just, I come back to it, Pippa Hackett, with if, if it's not the preferred deal, how did, how did it come to the point that the deal was done, if you've known about it? Well, if you've known that Quilcha has pursued private interests has been looking at private partnerships to meet climate targets that they actually themselves shouldn't have to meet, essentially. It is, it is a government. This is what governments have been tasked with right around the world. But if, you know, if Quilta were pursuing private interests and now you're not happy with Well, they the have deal, already pursued par private interests up to now. The Nature Trust is another, yeah. if you like, leg of this stool that, that deals entirely with, with um, broadleaf planting, native woodlands creation. Um, that's one aspect of it. This is another aspect which deals with, with um, commercial production. And then a third element of it will be okay. engaging with public bodies and public owned land already. Ideally, yes, we, 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 we keep the um, you know, state lands in, state, in, in public ownership. And I suppose that that is the preferred option. We need to now examine how we do that, right. how we can you, okay. know, you know, adjust to the state aid rules that are there. And, and ultimately, you know, it's a discussion right. we need to make. OK, it's a discussion now that has to be had. Um, Michael, I mean, are you hopeful that, you know, with fast track licences and, and all those grants going to farmers, that it'll balance out somewhat. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of farmers who, who, who want to um, improve their income from their holding, and if it's profitable to engage in um, in a, sustain, a sustainable type of agriculture, they will do so. I mean, you know, we've, forestry is a profitable sector across many countries in Europe. Uh, sustainable forestry is profitable across many countries in Europe. It could be in Ireland. But on the state aid thing, I mean, the state aid rules were recently negotiated, and there's no record of Ireland having intervened to try to bring about the changes okay. that... That, that, uh, Pip has it's just only mentioned. just January the 1st this year right. that the new state, state aid rules yeah, are in were, and now we're engaging they, with those now. They, they were the culmination of a, a, a discussion and negotiation at a European level and there's All no right. record of Ireland having we'll ever have, made the request that they're now being discussed. But we'll we're we're to going to engage there. with them now. We will have well, to leave it there. Now. My thanks to Elaine and to Patrick who joined us on Skype tonight. Lots more coming up after this break including Germany and America's decision to send tanks to Ukraine.
Welcome back. Some breaking news tonight, and it involves former U.S. President Donald Trump. Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, say that his accounts will be restored in the coming weeks, just over two years after suspending him in the wake of the January 6th capital attack. Meta says it's their determination that the risk to public safety has sufficiently receded, but that they have new guardrails in place to deter repeat offences. We'll see how all of that goes. Now, for months now, Ukraine has been asking its allies for more armoury in the war with Russia today. They got their wish. Germany performed a massive U-turn and gave Vladimir Zelensky more than a dozen tanks. Soon after, the United States followed. And today, today I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Well, we might say here it's like uh, waiting on buses and then they all come at once. Let's bring in Rosie Burchard, who joins me from Brussels. And Rosie, it's interesting, isn't it, how, how this how this was all, was it mapped out? I mean, that's the question. Germany is sending tanks to Ukraine and then the US joins in the effort um, and they talk about a united effort there. Uh, is that what happens in this instance? It was all pretty much coordinated. Well, a big transatlantic green light for Kiev. M dozens of modern Western-made main battle tanks will be in Ukraine. The Ukrainian armed forces will get their hands on them. And, of course, it's something that's been welcomed in Kiev, also welcomed by some of those that have been pushing for this here in the European Union, Poland and the Baltics. But it was not after, uh, not without a lot of diplomatic wrangling, diplomatic arm twisting. And that's because Germany was adamant that it would not move in, on sending such heavy weaponry without a similar move from the United States. And Berlin was being accused here of really dragging its feet, of hesitating. We even heard President Zelensky of Ukraine in the past few days saying that the time the free world takes to think is the time that Russia uses to kill. Now, while Germany was starting to seem a bit unpopular and out of touch in many international eyes, well, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz wasn't all that out of touch with public opinion because in Germany that is really split and there are some that fear that this move could really escalate this, could escalate this into a war much bigger than the conflict we're currently seeing, but a war where we see NATO and Russia directly stand off. But German Chancellor Schultz, as he addressed the Bundestag, the German parliament today, he really called out to those that are feeling uneasy in the German population and said, trust us, we are doing this in cooperation with our US partners. And as you noted, these announcements came uh, quickly in succession. So while there may be some in Germany feeling a little uneasy tonight, as you can imagine, it will be a big sigh of relief for many in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, uh, we're hearing, are, are bracing for a Russian offensive, a major offensive in the coming weeks, um, aimed at uh, completing the capture of those regions in Luhansk and Donetsk, we're hearing. So what's been, I suppose, the Russian response? Have we got any Russian response to what Germany and the US announced today about you know, rolling in these tanks? Yeah, Russia has said this is extremely dangerous, that it takes the conflict to a whole new level. And of course, that is uh, echoing what comments we've heard from Russia in the past. Moscow accuses those countries which are sending military aid to Ukraine of prolonging and fueling the conflict by arming Kiev. But of course, the view here in Brussels, where NATO is headquartered, is very much that Russia is the aggressor, is the instigator, and that indeed it is Moscow, which is the only party which is prolonging this deadly conflict. Now, uh, when it comes 
comes to Ukrainian troops preparing, they, we've seen across the winter the front lines in this war really hardening. It started to look like more of a stalemate after last summer we saw Ukrainian troops making more gains. Now, as you rightly pointed out, the suspicion is that Moscow be, may be readying for a major offensive in the spring. Now, Germany has said these tanks might take three to four months to be delivered or to be actively available on the battlefields. And as you can imagine, Kiev is pushing for speed here because Ukrainian troops would like to ready a counter-offensive. And of course, that is uh, the goal here from NATO, at least. NATO often says, we hear from officials there, that they will stay by Ukraine's side for as long, they say, as it takes. OK, and uh, Rosie, on this, is, is the EU, EU confident with all of this? As you say, you know, potentially here this, 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 this changes the shape of war and the impact it will have and the escalation that it's bringing essentially to this war, that Ukraine, Ukraine may actually win as opposed to just stalling Russia's advancement. It's a big discussion that's happening within the European Union, and of course, not least as European citizens feel the impact of this. I'm here in the middle of Brussels in the European quarter, but you can barely see that. That's because all the buildings here have had the lights switched off because of this energy crisis, which the European Union has been going through. But certainly countries like Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, they are really pushing here. I spoke to Lithuania's foreign minister on Monday, and he said very clearly that the European Union needs to be ready to say that Russia must lose. But of course, that's uh, it's a difficult discussion among different EU countries. And some of the reasons some think Germany was hesitant on this is that because some would say it, that at some point this war will end around a negotiating table and who will be there to do it. Now, uh, it's very clear from the EU perspective that we're hearing from officials, that we're hearing from top figures that they want Ukraine to win, that they believe Ukraine will win. And of course, they want Ukraine to have a European perspective, that they say to Ukraine that one day Ukraine will be part of the European Union, though that will likely be a very long road ahead. Okay. But certainly 2023 shaping up to be a difficult year, as many believe this conflict will go on for some time. OK, Rosie Burchard, who joined me tonight from Brussels, thank you for that. That is it from us. My thanks to Michael McNamara and Pippa Hackett, who are with us on the programme tonight. The group chat is up next on Virgin Media 2. Uh, that begins at 11. But from all the late team here, good night. And do take care.